You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Kirsten. And I'm Julian from richandregular.com, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. My first job was a mess. I was working for the man in corporate healthcare. The hours were long, the pay was poor, and I was an anxious mess. Six months into my professional life, I had none of the skills or knowledge to make a go of it on my own. So instead, I bided my time as an employee for the next five years in a more manageable, employed job. I learned the ropes, the secrets of the trade, and eventually ventured into a partnership with another physician. The next 10 years were better. I was self-employed, yet I still felt controlled by insurance companies, hospital administrators, and even the government. In 2018, after 15 years at Others Beck and Call, now a side hustle and a landlord to boot, I decided to blow this popsicle stand. I left. Adios. I cashed out. In their book, Cashing Out, Win the Wealth Game by Walking Away, Julian and Kirsten Saunders show how to design a life that allows you to enjoy the little things now while setting yourself up for future financial security. They draw from their journey paying off $200,000 of debt in five years, quitting their high-stress corporate jobs, and retaking control of their finances. Julian and Kirsten, welcome back to Earn and Invest. Julian, have we been sold a false set of goods? I mean, isn't starting a job in corporate America the dream we should all be striving for? I so wish that I could say yes to that question, but I'm now 41, knocking on 42, having tried myself and having been dealt a pretty strong hand in terms of education and mentors and access. But I think at the end of the day, my experience and the experience of a lot of other people that I know and love has sort of taught me that, no, that is unfortunately not enough. Again, I can look back on my own experience. I can look at the lives of many of the people that I know who are just as talented, in some cases, even more talented, and they certainly did not fare very well over the last 20 years. Kirsten, one thing you guys advocate, and we're going to come back to this over and over again in this interview, is this idea that you should be considering your escape plan from day one. And I'm wondering, is that healthy? I mean, should we really be thinking about our way out the day we get out of college and and start looking for our first job? Yeah, specifically if you're American, because otherwise no one else is going to do it for you. It's not like the other milestones in life where you know, you can borrow money to make it happen. You can lean on institutions to make sure that you're good. Work has no safety net other than the one that you create for yourself. And so you have to be able to begin with the end in mind that should shape all of your career choices, the jobs that you apply to, how you show up, what benefits you're looking for, knowing that at some point you got to get off this train, you got to get off this hamster wheel and actually live the life that you're, that you're here for. We have one life. And so a lot of us get on the hamster wheel and just continue to run in circles for the entirety of it. And that's to me missing the point. Julian, Kirsten mentioned safety nets. And I want to talk about yours specifically. You cashed out before Kirsten did. How did you know it was the right time? Well, my decision was was pretty abrupt. You know, if I'd had it my way, I would have hung on for a couple of more years, invested pretty much 
my entire salary because at the time we were living on 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 just one of our our salaries. But we had rental property and we had the ability to turn the second one. Actually, no, I think we had two rental properties at the time. This was back in 2018. But I knew that it was my time to walk away in part because I had just done the math and said, you know what, when I look at the emotional cost of dealing with, in my case, abuse and bullying and a tinge of racism at work, particularly given my experience was coming from people who I just really did not expect it to come from. That's when I knew that, you know, what was most important to me were the lessons that I would pass on to my son, who at the time was just one. And I just remember having a moment where I was thinking about the advice that I'd been given leading up to getting a job in corporate America. And they were all predominantly cautionary tales around how I'm going to have to act a certain way in order to get ahead. And as I was dealing with some pretty horrifying things, I just felt like, you know, what I do next, my decision to stay or leave is going to set the tone for the advice that I pass on to my son. And I knew in that moment that I did, I wanted to end the cycle there and that what I wanted to give him was a completely different set of experiences with me as a parent, with me as an entrepreneur, as someone who owns their time, so that when he got old enough to be able to work and earn money on his own, he didn't have to limit himself to the set of options that I was presented with when I was entering the workforce. Kirsten, we're going to talk in a moment about some of those kind of quote unquote horrifying things that he was mentioning and some of the things that that you both kind of want to shield your child from or, or teach at an early age. But before we get there, you left your corporate job a little bit after Julian did. Were there specific safety nets that you needed either emotionally or financially that kind of gave you permission to say, okay, it's not that I'm not going to make money anymore because you guys had your own business going, et cetera. But did you, did you need something to feel comfortable so you could leave corporate America? It was mostly emotional safety nets because around the time that I decided to leave, we had also decided to liquidate our real estate portfolio. So we decided to sell one rental before I left and then put the other one on the market You know, as I was turning in my resignation. So we had quite a bit of cash on hand. And then we had a thriving business that was still in the early stages of growing, but was producing you know, enough income to cover our base expenses every month. So what I mostly needed was an emotional safety net. And my challenge was that I was turning to Julian to give me that. And it created a lot of conflict because he was like, I can't give you that. I can, I can tell you the facts. I can tell you that you know we've figured things out before. I can tell you that the business could use you but you have to be comfortable with your own decisions and your own why as to leaving this identity and taking on essentially another one as an entrepreneur and a self-employed person. And it required, gosh, like six months of work. I mean, I was just like turmoiling over this. And even when I made the decision to turn in my resignation, I gave a four week notice and then they asked me to stay on another two months. And so it still extended like three months from the time that I told them that I was leaving to get to the point where I felt psychologically safe, that this was a good decision. Julian, is there such thing of cashing out without having fear? I mean, is it just part and parcel of taking that step? Yeah, I think without question, because even now, as comfortable as we are, as well off as we are, even we, gosh, I mean, I can go on, right? Like (laughs) as comfortable as we are, as well off as we are, as much momentum as we have, as much endorsement and support from the community and from major players in the media, from agents and so on and so on. Like I've got a a stacked hand (laughs) and I still have my moments where I don't receive enough inquiries in my inbox, or there's a delay in the processing of a payment, or we have to incur interest on a credit card. And I just wonder if I've made a horrible mistake from removing myself from these environments. And we talk about that in our book, because there are people who we've spoken to who have similar advantages. They have stock options. They've lived on less than half of their income for 10 years. They've got real estate portfolios. They've got all of these things working in their favor, but they are deathly afraid of pulling away from it. 
it, it's a really, really interesting thing that I think isn't even unique just to workers or high earners. As a, as a caveat, I, I recently watched this documentary. I think it was called Four Kings, and it was a Showtime documentary about these boxers in the 80s. And I'm loving this because I grew up during that era. And so I, I'm in this sweet spot where I get to watch my childhood being shown back to me. And now I'm digesting it in a very different way. But they're talking about Sugar Ray Leonard. They're talking about, you know, Tommy Hearns and Roberto Duran. And they're talking about boxers and the tendency for boxers to build their entire lives around being boxers and prize fighters. And then they retire. But I'm pretty sure 60 to 75% of boxers always come back. And unfortunately, Uh they go on to keep fighting. And they all, for the most part, end up fighting far longer than they should have. And it has devastating effects down the line. And so all of that to say, as I was watching this play out in unfortunately Googling them to see where they are now and watching videos and watching the slurred speech and watching all of these other mental and physical disabilities, I'm thinking like, wow, this is for the most part an extreme version of how this story goes. But the reality is everyday Americans go through their own version of this. We don't necessarily go to work and get punched in the face, but you know, we have our own version of this. We deal with constant abuse. We deal with mistreatment. We deal with all of these things in all forms. And we continue to underestimate what impact these things are going to have on our personal lives, what impact that's going to have on your ability to be a great partner, a great husband, a wife, son, etc. And so all of that to say, I don't know that that fear ever goes away. And it's enough to make people continue to get back into a ring, even though that they know it's going to have devastating effects. Mm. Hirsten, do you think we're learning better? I mean, as Julian uses that metaphor, I'm thinking of the great resignation. And it's like all of a sudden in the last year and some a, a segment of people have decided not to get back in the ring. Do you think we're learning better? I don't think so. <laughs> At least not yet. It's, it's hard to say because a lot of time hasn't passed yet. I do know that there's a boomerang effect to the great resignation. A lot of people have chosen to go back to work, but are just choosing nicer rings, right? (laughs) Like they're choosing better benefits. They're choosing remote opportunities, places that offer paternity leave, but they still aren't, like we were saying at the beginning, they still aren't beginning with an end in mind. They're not saying I'm going to do this for five years and treat it like, you know, the plush, you know, job that it is and set aside some money. It's just like they adjust their lifestyle. They're buying bigger homes, bigger cars. They're pimping their offices out at home with all the things like, you know, it's just, I don't know that the lesson has been learned yet. Now for a large swath of the great resignation population that went into self-employment, freelancing, contracting, I think they understand that there's another path that is equally as financially viable and gives a little more autonomy. And I think they might be closer to the lesson, but for a large amount of people, they just kind of upgraded the ring. Now they're at Madison Square Garden <laughs> instead of like the corner. <laughs> I want to take a moment to pause here. We're going to move ahead and start talking about the specifics of the book, Cashing Out. But I wanted to mention a few caveats. First, we're going to have a discussion that involves race, color, corporate America, And I know that a lot of people listening right now are are much like me. You know, we're kind of middle-aged, rich, white guys. And if you're listening to this right now and your thought process is, this has nothing to do with me, I should skip ahead to something else. Or even more specifically, if you're getting a little bit angry and, and thinking, boy, I kind of got to where I was because of my abilities, I'd like to encourage you to stick around for a little while and take a listen. That's caveat number one. Caveat number two is usually during my interviews, I throw big questions at my guests and hope to get them to stumble along and come up with some really great content. I was just so taken by all the quotable sentences in Cashing Out that instead of asking specific questions, I'm going to actually bring up a few quotes and we're just going to discuss them. And the last caveat is when I went to start writing down quotes that I wanted to talk about. I had about 20, which was enough for one episode, maybe two. And then I realized I had only made it through 10% of the book. 
So the truth of the matter is we might focus on some of the beginning content of the book, but there is a lot of really important hardcore financial information in here. If it takes us a while to get to that, that does not mean that there isn't some really great stuff there, regardless of who you are. If you're interested in getting a better financial foundation, this book is for you. So with those caveats, let's jump in. Kirsten, I want to read you the first quote I came to. While much of the advice and counsel offered in this book is relevant to all people, we want to be clear. This book is written from a Black and minority perspective. Why? Because those communities are most in need, and because Black and brown people are estimated to be the new majority minority in the coming decades. We want to make sure we're equipping them with information and stories that are designed to uplift. Tell me about the new majority minority. I was just taken by the words. Maybe it was the alliteration, but tell me what that means exactly. Yeah, it just means that the country is getting browner, essentially. If you, I think time published an issue a couple of years ago that had this racially ambiguous little girl on the cover. And it was like, this is the future of America. Like we've always been a melting pot, but there are, it's a lot more prevalent right now where there are plenty of biracial and multiracial families. There are adoption stories where now there are blended families that are black and white. It's just becoming a lot uh, browner. And so there's a lot of lessons that have been gatekept within white communities that weren't passed on to marginalized identities. And so what was important for us was to recognize that there are some stories that we have that we need to start from to say, these are the things that you have specifically heard your life and you need to let those go as we move into this world where you're now going to be able to make more money, you're going to have more opportunity, more freedom, and just the ability to make different decisions than your, your family might have. And so that's kind of where it came from was just acknowledging that, you know, I don't know the year off the top of my head, but by, I, I think it's 2047, I don't remember, but the, the, the majority of Americans will not identify as white. Julian, contrast that fact to what corporate America looks like today, especially its leadership yeah, well, it's pretty well known. The vast majority of leaders, you know, the, the, the stat that they often throw out is around CEOs, but I'm less concerned with that because there are only around 500 of those or however many publicly traded companies. But they're, they're, they're often talking about essentially there are a handful. I believe the number is now at five, which is an all-time high, if I'm not mistaken, of Black CEOs of publicly traded companies. Obviously, that doesn't include private organizations, but it's pretty safe to say that most of them are ran and operated by non-people of color, right? And so when you think about what Kirsten is suggesting, it just speaks to the imbalance that we have. But I think more importantly, it speaks to the persistence of this imbalance. As someone who's worked in corporate America, I've always been, I've always recognized that and in many ways just accepted that. But then when you look down and you look at the vice presidents and you look at directors and you look at managers, I mean, you know, we're... You know, we're at a point now, and there's another great book entitled Diversity, Inc. by Pamela Newkirk, which I define as a bit of a, an expose of diversity, equity, and inclusion work, because it, what it really highlights is that billions of dollars have been spent on or in support of diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, and the results have been essentially where we are today, practically minimal, like very little change. And so all of that to say, there's, there's something there. <laughs> it speaks to the persistence of it. I mean, it, again, when you think about a company or company spending billions of dollars on something and seeing no results, at some point you have the question, why do we keep doing this? Or what are we doing wrong? But more importantly, from an individual level, what we're primarily concerned with going back to the quote is how many people, how many families we know are basing their financial lives around the success of these efforts. They are hoping that these efforts create opportunity for themselves. They are tying themselves to this illusion of meritocracy in corporate America. They're not taking a chance on themselves in creating their own businesses or looking outside of jobs for ways to build wealth. Instead, they are trusting that these companies and the leaders of these companies are going to do what they said they're going to do, even though the data has suggested that they have not cannot or will not, or maybe some combination of all of the above. 
And that's ultimately what we're really trying to tackle in our book, which is to say, hey, perhaps we should be looking at the data and using that to make more informed decisions about how to live our lives and our careers. Kirsten, let's talk about the meritocracy. You guys also say, but after witnessing countless talented Black colleagues routinely passed up for promotions, we begun to believe meritocracy was as mythical as Santa Claus. We were perpetually overappreciated and underpaid. Instead of receiving pay or positions, we were given awards and applause. Talk about that. I mean, it sounds like people have been discussing equity a lot. And maybe an easy way to believe you're being equitable is to give the applause. But are we not backing that up with the financial benefits and the raises in stature and and job? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people interpret meritocracy as just being seen. And what it leads to is a conclusion in Black communities and Brown communities that hypervisibility equals wealth in some way, right? And so we spend all of this time on LinkedIn posting these conferences that we get to go to and the awards that we've won and the very challenging projects that we've gotten to work on and the connections and friendships that we've made, but it doesn't translate into financial capital. It is a lot of social capital, right? Which is important, but it's only important. It only It's only meaningful if you can translate that somehow into financial capital, meaning you get the same nepotism that some of your white colleagues have benefited from, or you get to take those skills and become a contractor and charge you know, more. You join a consultancy firm and you're able to shape business strategies. Things like that don't happen after all of the visibility. And this has been a pattern for a long time. We see it with our musicians. We see it with our athletes where it's like, man, how were they the biggest star with the biggest contract? And four years later, they're completely broke because it doesn't always translate. And so what we're trying to say is that, you know, you you can't go into this system, this political structure, thinking that it's going to translate into more money. You actually have to take the step and do it yourself because it's not going to happen automatically. Julian, let's talk about the glass ceiling. And I think this is not just about people of color. It can be about gender. There are a lot of people who are kind of facing this idea of being the first person in the room of whichever characteristic they have that everyone else doesn't have. You spent a lot of your career trying to be that first person in the room. What changed? I have always had the stubborn habit of being willing to ask uncomfortable questions to myself, but also to my leaders. I think it's something that's differentiated me from a lot of my other peers. They would rather hold on to the comfort of the story that they've been told, which is that if they just stick with it, stay on the treadmill, that eventually they'll get somewhere. And I found in speaking to people that, you know, and by people, I mean, predominantly vice presidents, you know, C-suite executives behind closed doors, they are deeply unfulfilled, deeply frustrated with the lack of progress. Uh, And I'll pause there because in part, the frustration that they feel is very similar to the frustration and the pain that I think a lot of Black Americans have with with America, which is that I know what you're capable of. I've seen what you're capable of. And so when we think about executives, predominantly the few Black executives, many of them find themselves so frustrated because they've watched their colleagues go on to achieve great things. They've watched their colleagues' organizations go on to achieve great things. But for some reason, many of them end up having underfunded projects or lofty titles that don't have any real power or influence, or in many cases, they are actually given the power, but there are other influences like political influences internally that get in the way of them actually employing the power that they've been given on paper. And so it's just so messy and complicated. And as I looked at those people and and, and beyond just what they were able to do in the workplace, but also what their lives looked like outside of work. And you'd hear these stories about stress. You'd hear these stories about illnesses and and physical ailments that they're dealing with because of the stress. You'd have to wonder, like, why am I striving to do that? Right. I'll take another step back. Clearly, I've been watching a lot of documentaries and I'm at a point now where I believe at the point of recording this, I'm going to mess it all up. But anyway, we just celebrated Jackie Robinson Day and We like to talk about all the things that he had to go through, right, in order to break the ceiling of 
Major League Baseball. And now I, I look at this stuff and I think about it. I'm like, man, I, I hope it was worth it, you know? Um, or you want to ask about his children. You want to ask about his family. You want to ask about the cost that he incurred to do this. Yes. Um, you think about the, the woman who was just elected to the Supreme Court, and, and that Katanji. was Katanji. And you think about what she just went through. Oh. And I remember watching it and thinking like... My stomach. I couldn't finish it. All, all of this yeah, just, to, yeah. just to be the first. Right. Right. And so when you look at that, juxtaposed with what we know about the value and, and the freedoms that investing affords you, and quite honestly, the lack of issues or obstacles that you deal with, you know, like I've never known anyone who received less than their fair share of return because they were a woman or because they were a man. Right. And so we don't want to say that so that, that, that life's problems or racism or sexism or any of these other issues that we know exist in the workplace will disappear through investing. But we certainly know that by investing, you have a much better chance at a higher quality of life. And so that there's something there, part of the solution for sure is centered around redesigning your life so that you can maximize and optimize your income in order to obtain financial freedom. Kirsten, another quote. It's clear that adopting the principles of FIRE, financial independence retire early, has the potential to create more Black millionaires than corporate America ever could, as opposed to breaking the glass ceiling, you're almost suggesting going around it, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> is, is FIRE the answer, at least financial independence? I mean, is that that great answer we've been looking for? I think it's an individual solution to a systemic problem. It's not the answer, but it's it's an option. Like the glass ceiling by nature, you don't know that you've hit it until you hit that thing. And like, there are very <laughs> few things that you would sign up for where it's like, okay, you, there's a cliff here. If you keep running, eventually you're going to fall off the mountain and everybody's like, all right, well, let's just keep running and see what happens. And it's like, with the glass ceiling, it's just one of those things like, that's it's going to hurt. <laughs> like It's going to scar. It's not something that you just go through and then, you know, you're fine after the fact. To Julian's point, as a student of history, like I've followed the stories of the people that we put on pedestals and a lot of them, especially the women, regret it. Ruby mm -hmm. Bridges talks very specifically about not wanting to be the person who integrated schools and that her, her family got divorced and her dad got fired from his job and his her grandparents who were sharecroppers lost their land. There was a lot of collateral damage there. And so to, I think the point we were trying to make was in a world where over a lifetime, Black women stand to lose a million dollars in wages just from like pay inequity, like no difference in workload, environment, even at the FANG companies, even at top tech companies, Black women are still underpaid compared to their peers. That's an unfair advantage. It doesn't mean that you can't be a millionaire in corporate America. It's just a matter of math and frequency and probability that your, your career is more likely to be disrupted. Your career is more likely to be stalled. And so continuing to bet on it as like this lifetime thing is probably not the best bet you can make. We are talking to Julian and Kirsten Saunders. They are the authors of Cashing Out, Win the Wealth Game by Walking Away. We are going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is... There's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. 
N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd analyzes companies across the global private market, selecting those with the greatest growth potential, then brings them to you. From personalized medicine to cybersecurity to robotics, quantum computing, and more in state-of-the-art labs, startup garages, and anywhere in between, our crowd is identifying innovations so you can invest where growth potential is greatest early. Our crowd's accredited investors have already invested over $1 billion in growing tech companies, and many of their members have benefited from the 46 IPOs or sale exits of their investments. Now you can truly diversify your portfolio by investing early in innovative private market companies at our crowd. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at rcrowd.com slash EAI. That's O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D dot com slash E-A-I. We are talking to Kirsten and Julian Saunders. They are the creators of the Rich and Regular platform, and they show us how to design a life that allows us to enjoy the little things now while setting ourselves up for future financial security. We're talking about the book Cashing Out, which is live and available when, Julian? June 14th, 2022. So June 14th, 2022. Kirsten, another quote. If the fight you're in is rigged, what's the minimum amount of rounds you need to hang in there before voluntarily throwing in the towel? Then, instead of doubling down on your career ambitions, ask yourself how quickly you can hop off the rickety ladder we've all climbed onto. I think one of the biggest, most controversial points of the book is actually the name, Cashing Out. You guys talk about leaving corporate America after 15 years and actually being very thoughtful and intentional about that from the start. How did you come up with the 15 years? It was it was based on the idea of other life milestones. We understand that early education is roughly 12 years, K through 12. We understand that advanced degrees are somewhere between, you know, four and eight years. And so for a career that involves paying off debt, that involves acquiring new skills, that involves testing and learning to see the value of those skills in the marketplace, 15 years felt right. There are some caveats that we make in the book around, you know, being in a dual income and being in a high wage job that that factor in that number. But even if you don't take it at its face value, 15 years, maybe it takes you 22 years. I think the days of expecting to work 40 to 50 year careers, which is what we saw our parents do, are pretty much done. Right. And it's not to say that after your 15 year career, you can't go start another one or you can't continue working. It's just the idea of how long do you stay in this institution and kind of let that be the dominant source of income for your financial plan. I think that's what we're asking people to to determine for themselves. Julian, break down those phases a little bit. I imagine the first phase of those 15 years is probably dealing with debt. Yeah. You know, it's it's really about using that first five years to, to the best of your ability, live below your means. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of people are still struggling with debt. And what we're really suggesting is, I know that the moment you graduate or the moment you get that job, the very first thing you're going to want to do is to introduce some comfort to your life. I'm telling you from experience, one of the best things that you can do is to just hold on or to be mindful about what degree of those comforts you you you, you take full advantage of. Use that time wisely to eliminate as much debt, if not all of the debt uh, that you can. 
then transition into the second phase where you're focused on investing, which you can also do in the first phase. Obviously, it just kind of depends on your scenario. But you move into the second phase, year six through 10, where you're really focused on investing in as a high rate as possible, but also bouncing around, like really pressure testing what you're good at, what you're learning, what core skill sets you have access to learning and developing while you're in the workplace. Because Without question, one of the things I think corporate America does really well is to introduce people to the world of business and very particular disciplines and management and leadership styles. So take full advantage of those things with the intention of transitioning to years 11 through 15, where now you're, one, using those skill sets to move yourself into the highest earning job that you possibly can but also using that skill set or other skill sets that you've developed to pressure test how you can earn income outside of the limitations within the traditional workplace. That's exactly what we did. That's what a lot of other people that we know and the stories that we've told in the book have done. And I think that is what the vast majority of people in the United States should be doing rather than optimistically assuming that they will always be employable, always be interested, or even capable of working at a high rate, and even worse, earning what they are already earning or more for the foreseeable future. That just has not proven to be true. And so first five years, focusing on debt payoff for the most part. Second five years, focusing on investing, then building as many skills as you can to get a high paying job, but also looking to build skills that you can use to monetize outside of that job. And that third five years is continuing to invest at a high rate, but pressure testing the marketplace for the skills that you've developed out in both places, right? Because I think when you create those supplemental sources of income, it completely changes the way that you look at work and your time. You now have something to compare it to. So many people go into their lives with only one person or one source of income, which means they have nothing to compare it to. They have no idea. They say, well, if I spent an hour or two hours doing these other things, this is how much I could learn or how much more I could earn. They continue to go back to the same source and drink from the same watering hole. And we really want to give people an opportunity to diversify those sources so that they can then make a much more educated decision about how best to design their total income that they can then use to build a completely different life. Julian, you're talking about sources of income, but also in the book, you talk about the different purposes of income. Mm -hmm. Um, You talk about four specifically, what are those purposes and, and are they as important in each phase or do they become more or less important in different phases of that 15 year period? Sure. And and before I get into talking about the four phases, I'll talk a little bit about why we created it. And it's because I don't believe most people ever really think about it. We're just so conditioned to think, I just need to have as much income as possible, but there's no real game plan for that income. I want to make six figures. And we speak at this romantic, arbitrary term, six figures. And it's like, great, well, you get six figures. What are you going to do with that? Most people, unfortunately, just spend that money away, again, enjoying the comforts that their income provides them. But the four phases that we've identified are focusing first on security, which is just to cover the bare basics for survival. Once you've earned enough income to cover that, the next purpose of your income is obviously to what we call create some flexibility in your life, which is to upgrade a couple of things, to enjoy some things, perhaps not all things in life, but enjoy the things that matter most to you so that you can enjoy the flexibility, the options that are available to you. But you have to recognize that most people get stuck in that phase. They get Mm -hmm. stuck there. They realize that the purpose or they think that the purpose of the income is to just continue to enjoy the flexibilities and the comforts that their income provides them as opposed to investing or putting that income to work so that it can create future income and ultimately help you achieve what we think is the third phase, which is what we would call financial independence. But even if or when you achieve that degree, you're still living on a bit of a budget, right? There are limitations to what that level of wealth can afford you. And then from there, you want to make what we've identified as really just a mental shift, which is to go from financial independence to financial freedom, which is you are comfortable with risk far more than you've ever been. Doesn't mean that you don't experience fear in any way, but you're comfortable with risk. You are 
mindful of the money and the wealth that you've attained. And you're just able to live a much more fulfilling life. And whatever that means for you, for us at this juncture, we get deep fulfillment from creativity and from helping others. That may not always be the case. We may evolve into something else. But what we found is that a lot of people really struggle to kind of make the shift from mostly flexibility to independence. But even those who are at that stage of independence struggle to go from independence into freedom. They're constantly still kind of grinding and not doing the things that they thought they could do or would do when they actually got the money that they needed. Kirsten, let's talk about financial freedom in a Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat world. You say, in reality, a financial free life for most people looks completely different from the online images. And honestly, from where we sit now, we can tell you it's pretty boring. (laughs) Most of the rich people we know live remarkably predictable lives. Contrast kind of that social media view of financial freedom versus what it feels like to you in reality. Yes, it feels social media has changed the way, what we aspire to. It's changed the aspiration of life and focused it around consumerism. Right? That's the point of these platforms, right? They're free to us because advertisers can fill our timelines with things to buy, things to aspire to, things to get distracted by. And so it's changed our brain to say when you're exposed to, you know, six to eight thousand of those things a day, it's changed your brain to say, oh, that's what, you know, the point of all of this is. And what I'm suggesting is that it's actually not. The minute you log off from your phone, and there's been plenty of documentaries on this, the social network is one of them that talks about the dopamine and and drug (laughs) aspects of social media. Once you kind of detox from that, once you go and experience the real world, have conversations with strangers again, actually connect with people on things that you're interested in, you realize that 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 is actually the nutrition that your brain craves. That is the connection, the hole in your heart that you've been trying to fill. It's actual human stuff. It's not the stuff through the screens. And so the reason we say it's boring, it's just boring compared to what looks like a damn good time online all the time. But like, I've been at those events. I know those people who are influencers and I can tell you it's all staged. Like everybody's on their phone. Every, no one's having a good time. It's a pool party, but ain't nobody in the pool. Like there's just, there's more to aspire to. And we'd like to remind people of that by encouraging them to put their phones down and actually go connect in the real world. Yeah. And I'll also add it's that, and it's similar to what Kirsten was saying is that You'll never see, the media will never reward you with the stories of the people who are actually living these lives because it's so damn boring. And you have to recognize that. No no one's ever going to say like millionaire enjoys a hot cup of coffee on his patio every morning. Right. No one's going to, to, to you're, you're never going to see that on CNBC, <laughs> even right? though it's wonderful, Even though that's the goal <laughs> to not drink your coffee out of a metal thermos on the way to work. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And, and brag about the fact that it's a Yeti. So it's still, you know, still so hot still nine hot hours by later. the time you get to the office. <laughs> But yeah, but that's that's the reality or that, you know, millionaire doesn't even check his balances anymore and spends his life focused on climate change or mental health in his local community. Like no one's going to write that story because we're, that's just not the world that we live in. Like it's all about sizzle. It's all about the next biggest, most extreme thing. And that has shaped a lot of people's thinking around what it means to be rich and what it means to be wealthy. And so part of this process is also accepting that. And if you're going to plug into television, cable, or social media, that that's going to be the norm. I don't see it changing anytime soon, but you have to take it with a giant, you know, spoonful of salt and, or just choose to ignore it altogether. Kirsten, one of my favorite quotes from the book, I love it because it's so short and sweet. Wealth building is a series of small acts of courage. Tell me, what do you think the hardest act of courage has been for you guys in your journey towards wealth building? Paying ourselves first. It was very easy to do when the check was consistent and coming from you know a corporation in the form of a paycheck. But as entrepreneurs, there's a long laundry list of things, including you know a bigger safety net, going back to Julian's point, where it's like, oh, this payment may be delayed. Let's hold on to a little more cash. 
or let's upgrade our equipment or let's ensure that we have an office space to work in. You know, there's just a long list of things. And a lot of that is attempting to recreate the the safety and the comfort that we had in corporate America. And what we're learning is like that is a fool's errand. We still need to pay ourselves first, not just make sure that our bills are covered, but like invest and make sure our son has, you know, a custodial account and a five to nine and making sure that we still have a plan for our retirement and that we still take vacations. And so it's, it's one of the biggest acts of courage that a lot of people, particularly those who live paycheck to paycheck struggle with immediately as their money comes in, it goes out to rent and to utilities and cell phone and all of the bill collectors that are out there. But it's so important to set aside, even if it's just $25 or $50, set aside money for the expenses that come with just living here and and planning for your retirement. I kind of want to answer that question too. (laughs) I want to add a B because I think it's really important, especially given the message that we talk about in our book. But I would say another really bold act of courage is raising your rates as an entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. like placing a premium on your time and your skill sets. And it's a very uncomfortable act, especially if you're someone who is transitioning from the workforce because you're not a really accustomed to doing that. We're, we're, we're trained and accustomed to allowing other people to set our worth mm-hmm. in many ways and, and asking for a raise, like trying to make a case for a raise, but in many cases also accepting that that may come with a completely different and more complex set of tasks and accountability or even greater goals that you will have to accomplish as an entrepreneur, you can actually just choose to raise your rates without incurring more responsibility. In fact, it could be the other way around. I'm going to raise my rates so that I have the margin to outsource certain skills that allow me to have greater time to focus on the things that are most important to my income or whatever the objective is. And so it's part of the leap that I think a lot of people need to make, which is why we've given them a five-year runway to figure out what that looks like. You spend years 11 through 15 pressure testing. Maybe it's, maybe you've been, you know, focused on being a B2C company and you need to focus on B2B because it's, it's different. It'll bring a completely different set of obstacles, but we're giving people five years to figure all of that stuff out so that at the end of that 15-year career, you can walk into entrepreneurship or not, but assuming you want to become an entrepreneur, you can walk into that with far more of a greater understanding. It makes starting a business or growing a business less scary because one, you've got a financial safety net behind you. You've built some really strong practices, but two, you're not just stepping out on faith. Like you've done the work, you've pressure tested, you've seen where you can grow. And I think you can just walk into building or growing a business far more confident that way. Kirsten, the term bootstrapping has almost become a, a, a dirty or negative term. We certainly have been talking about it a lot lately, especially with everything going on in the world. Tell me how you were able to deal with the dichotomy of radical personal responsibility versus pushing for systemic change as you were thinking about writing cashing out like how did you find the balance cuz certainly as a reader i felt like you were very specific about how we can take personal responsibility for our financial lives and yet you also pointed to some of the systemic problems that need political national change how are you able to kind of walk that line yeah, I, I think the secret for me was to stop searching for balance. It it became a, a task that was overwhelming and stressful for me to try to find balance. And instead, I just acknowledge that it's actually a harmony. It is a song that is always playing. I, I am Black in America, so I am constantly dealing with, again, it's a political structure. I think of racism and systemic oppression as a political structure. That is the country that I was born into. But at the same time, there are opportunities, there are little loopholes, there are little things that I can do to make it less oppressive for me and in turn for others, because I then gain the freedom to speak, to use my voice, to give, to promote causes and politicians that I support. And so it's allowed me to be a better feminist, a better activist, a better philanthropist, mother, sister, friend, wife, because I have the freedom that came through, you know, fin- finances to, to express myself. 
I don't know if that answered the question, but I think it's just acknowledging, and we try to capture this early in the book where we talk about, you know, the the trinity of cashing out, which is acknowledging the black tax and acknowledging the role that community plays and just acknowledging that we have to dance to a different tune when we're talking about financial advice. It's we have to do emotional calculus to try to figure out like what the right decision is. And once I accepted that and stopped resisting it, stopped trying to find a solution all on all on my own, things became a lot easier because it, the journey was about letting go of things that just weren't working anymore. The book is Cashing Out, Win the Wealth Game by Walking Away by Julian and Kirsten Saunders. Julian and Kirsten, thank you for coming on the show today. I've really enjoyed the discussion. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life. And if people, A, want to buy the book and B, want to learn more, how can they do that? Well, next up for us, there's two things. One, we are hoping, quite honestly, we have a video series called Money on the Table. And the purpose of that series is to make financial literacy more entertaining. I I believe that we as Americans have a deep appreciation for entertainment. And I think we want to have the best shot at making financial programming and literacy available to people in a way that's easily digestible. We need to make it fun and we need to make it entertaining. And so we're hoping to bring money on the table to a network that will spread it to millions of people around the country and hopefully hopefully the world. The second thing is a project that we've been slowly baking in the background, and it's a website that will essentially act in the same capacity as Yelp or TripAdvisor would do for financial courses. Over the last couple of years, we've seen a huge boom in financial literacy courses and programming from large institutions and independent entrepreneurs. But today, most people who are buying those courses have no way of comparing one to the other. And I think they deserve that right to be able to do that so that they can make an informed decision. And so it's our first foray into tech. We've got some two amazing business partners that we've been working with to help build that site. And we're hoping to launch it this spring or summer. And Cashing Out will be available when and where? Yes, you can pre-order it now. If you don't know, pre-orders are hugely important to authors The book releases on June 14th. It's available anywhere books are sold from Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, Walmart. If you're interested in an independent book seller, we have a list on our website, or you can use IndieBooks.com and they can direct you to the right place. But we're so excited to get it into the hands of the people and create dialogue. Our mission has always been to inspire better conversations about money. So even if you don't agree with everything we say in the book, we hope that it at least sparks a conversation. And that's a win in and of itself. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Julian and Kirsten Saunders. That's a wrap. So tell me what we missed. What didn't we talk about that you would want to about the book? Anything? Um, I don't think so. I know that we are prepared to talk about uh, critics. <laughs> like <laughs> critics? <laughs> what do you still, mean critics? <laughs> they're still not, like this is still a very fringe message. And because we're always talking with friends, like you know, in the space, like no one sees it as a fringe message. They're like, yeah, it just makes sense. But what we're actually up against is decades and billions of dollars in industry saying the opposite. Yeah. And so I don't I don't expect you to have covered that on this podcast, but it's something that I know that like hasn't come up yet and that we'll we'll have to address it at some point. But I thought the conversation was great. I love the flow. I love that we spent the right amount of time on different things and the questions are always again out of this world. Well, let me tell you a few things about the book. Um, A, just fantastic quotables. I mean, literally, I I had to stop myself because there was just so much to highlight. Um, You guys have a real talent for packing a lot of information into a few sentences in a powerful way. And I really, really thought you did that well throughout the book, but especially in that first 
50 to 100 pages. There is just so much good stuff there. I mean, I'm seeing tweets. I'm seeing Instagram posts. I'm just seeing just the the content there. Um, yeah. And and not just because it's catchy, but because it succinctly says so many important things. Um, and I, I was blown away by that part. No question about it. I think you guys came and led with what what I believe is your strong suit. Um, again, from an outsider's view, from more of a marketing perspective, I really do think the marketing is right that this is for Black people, from what I can tell from talking to you, et cetera. On the other hand, there is tons of good information there for anyone, no question about it. As I'm looking again from the outside at your marketing plan, I think because it's funny, right? Because this is there's there's critical stuff about corporate America in here, but I think corporate America should embrace this book, man. Like, oh yeah, I think yes. diversity and equity conversations in 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 businesses around the country need to jump off of your book and start these conversations. Um, and I hope that a lot of them embrace this and order thousands and thousands of copies. Cause to me, that's where this discussion needs to take place. And corporate America needs to say, look, we don't want you to feel like you can only have a 15 year career. We don't want you to look up and feel like you're going to have to bash your head over and over again to make headway. Um, and I do think there are enough people, at least on the outside who say they're good actors in this space. Yeah. And I'm hoping that they will adopt some of your suggestions and use your book as a teaching tool. And so for any group of non people of color who are going to stay away from this book, because they think it's not for them, I would say the other side is corporate America, hopefully will embrace it and, and really use it for what, what it could do for, for business today. Thank you. Thank you for that. I wish I had, um, clarity. Obviously, this is our first time writing a book and, and marketing and selling a book. I wish I had more clarity around what to expect. All I have is what I think and based on yeah. some of these early conversations. <clears throat> and I think I, I'm just bracing myself that none of what I think is going to happen will happen. I think what will happen is that there will be exactly what you said. There will be um, representatives of corporate America, certain organizations. I believe they will be white. Um, I think it will be white people, white men and women who champion this work. Um, and I think that act will then give Black leaders some who have the ability to actually say, all right, so we can't talk about this. We've accepted this. Um, and it's almost like a welcomed, you know, we've said this before. We want our book to be a welcomed critique. Yeah. But the what you know what I mean? Like you, you can't, it's like a light spanking, if you will. <laughs> and so it takes it takes a certain type of character who is courageous and confident enough in who they are as a leader to be able to take our message and say, This is really important. Everyone should read this. And we know how this works. You see it on LinkedIn every single day. You get one person who's willing to yeah. say that. Yeah. And everyone else in their social circle says, oh, well, all right, then we can do this. Now, if that doesn't happen, the other thing that will happen will be some, because this is just how the media works, some large scale shit storm happens. And you say, well, see, well, this is why Rich and Regular says to cash out. And then everyone <laughs> says, what? Cashing out. And then all of a sudden, that's the thing. It's, it's essentially, you know, yeah. There, I call it the George Floyd effect, right? Yeah. None of this is new. None of these things are issues that we didn't know existed before, but it takes a large scale, unavoidable media frenzy to force the issue. And because there are so few books that talk about it, because most people are seeing the opposite. Most people in this space are trying to help you navigate these spaces despite the obstacles. Most people are saying, hey, you need to lean in and this is how you can get your seat at the table. And we're saying that we've tried that for the last 15, 20 years. The shit didn't work. And they're going to burn you out. They're going to burn you out. We know that. Cause yeah. we've seen, you know what I mean? Like, why are we even trying to do this? Like stop fighting a rigged game, put a cap on the amount of rounds that you're willing to play and throw in the fucking towel. And that should be okay. Right. Like that in my book should be okay. If you're giving 15 years of your best young years to a corporation 
and you're giving them your ideas because that's what we're doing. You're giving them your ideas, your intellectual um, property. In some cases, you're even signing like anti-competitive. <laughs> we're like, this is what we're doing. We're giving that shit that. away yeah. at a discount. Right. Um, we're just saying, like, you know, let's be better students of history. Like, this is what this is an alternative, something that we could have done. But it's it's a marketing, it's a it's a marketing challenge that depending on the day, I am totally up for and other days <laughs> I am totally exhausted by. Um, because I feel like we can do everything right, but it's really gonna take some bullshit, like <laughs> you know, like a leader to mention something or some celebrity to mention something, and that's actually gonna be the be the thing that helps to get the word out. At the end of the day, we talk about this often, we can sleep better at night knowing that we've done our part, because to your point, like we've always tried to straddle the fence between um, sort of earning as much money as we can as entrepreneurs, but also making sure that we stand for something and serve our community. Mm -hmm. And now it's at a point where it's like, you know what, I can just say, we'll buy the book. Like when I get the emails from people, buy the book, it just makes my life a lot easier (laughs) to be able to say, I bought a, I wrote a book about it, buy the book. Um, and, and, And it's something that I think, you know, we know we'll live on, you know, for a long time and then hopefully it does well. Um, but we feel good about it. And um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, in my opinion, always like the right person saying the right thing at the right time in the right mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And like, so it's really hard to get all of those. And I'm hoping that you've got that right. Cause so I know you're the right people. I, I know you're the saying the right things and I know you're saying them in the right way. Now mm-hmm. the real question is, like you said, all those things that are a little bit harder to control. Is this the right time? Will the right person the right notice time. it, et cetera? Yeah. Um, and and I clearly doing and working on my own book realize that like it's so random, I think, what makes a book work and not, you mm-hmm. know. It is. Um, but I'm hoping and feeling like you guys hopefully are those things at this moment. Cause I, I think. I certainly know lots of people are trying to talk about these things right now, even definitely corporations and people who are not of color are starting to, it's, it's starting to break that shell. Like there's, it's, it's starting to happen. People are starting to say, Oh, okay. There, there is something here. We've need to address this in our corporate structure. That doesn't mean things are going to change, but at least it means like that crack is there. So, uh, um, and we've given people something to do. Like, I think the challenge with DEI work and and racial conversations and the, and the workplace is that you don't give anybody anything to do. You don't empower the person who's being impressed. You keep saying like, okay, well go start a meeting with this person or go make friends with a white boy or like, (laughs) you know, it's not (laughs) things that you're excited to do that you're empowered to do on your own. It still requires somebody else, like essentially picking you saying like, okay, come on in. And this is very different, which is why I'm hoping that corporations like the message because it kind of takes the heat off of them. Like they still need to do their part. They still need to promote and pay. But like after that, you ain't got to worry about like (laughs) making sure that people can retire. Like it's a it's a partnership. It's more of like a, a thing that we're doing together that's specifically for people who feel like you don't do anything for them. So I hope that it kind of breaches broaches a conversation that, you know, everybody's willing to have and just acknowledge, like, we're not going to do that for you, but here's a book that teaches you how to do it for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. How are you feeling about yours? How are things going? It depends on the day. <laughs> <laughs> I love the trailer. Um, thank you. I, I feel like there've been some real wins in some ways and then some ways I'm not, not feeling like I'm getting to the potential. For instance, I'm definitely having trouble with media, like media mentions, like, you know, I sent out 50 or 60, even more kind of pitch emails to different people I had, I'd focused on in the media and getting very little response to that. I'm happy, very happy with the where the manuscript is. I'm really happy with the trailer. I think the trailer might be an opportunity to get kind of a wider audience if I can get it there, because what I'm getting feedback from the trailer is this makes me want to buy the book. Uh-huh. which is exactly what I need out of it. So the question is how to get that trailer out to bigger and bigger audiences, maybe audiences that traditionally wouldn't hear of me. Um, uh-huh. Excited about the, you know, so what What I've been told at least is you get a lot of bang from your book from podcasts. So I'm happy uh-huh. to be really scheduling as many podcasts as I can, especially on ones that I think are well-placed. 
Are you are you are you talking to like podcasts within the medical uh, field or so I am and I'm trying to do some media. I've had much more success with media in the medical field than in the financial field. But a lot of times it's like they want me to talk about hypertension or this or that. Um, But I'm trying to reach out to both as well as, you know, I could take a, a probably very successful take for me, but I'm just not sure if I'm ready to do this is you know, I could do a lot of speaking stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So AARP, medical associations, those kind of stuff. And I just don't know if I have the emotional energy right now to to sell books that way, which is a lot of upfront work, a lot of yes. traveling and speaking and that kind of stuff, which eventually leads to people buying the book. And then there's that other side of, of trying to hold on to what about this is good and is striving towards something and trying to get your message out versus something that also feels not always good for me. Cause I don't like self-promotion. I never did. Um, and so I'm, I'm trying to balance all of that out and turn it into something that feels like a really positive, um, experience. I I've been thinking a lot. Of, you know, I talked to Grant Sabatier a lot about this cause he's kind of helped me get to this point with the book, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when he talks about his book, I mean, he's he's a huge, wonderful self-promoter, right? He does it in a lot of good ways. But when you really talk to him, he just wanted to get that book to people so it could help them. And, like, mm-hmm. you know, he was he was paying his own money to send people, random people, like, his book through Amazon because someone wrote him and asked him about it. And I think mm-hmm. I'm trying to take on that kind of intention of, can I do something good with this book and get it out there and be as generous as possible? And then whatever happens from there. Um, is kind of icing on the cake. So I have, a, I have a lot of mixed emotions. Certainly um, this pulls out a lot of insecurities in me and I'm not usually a, a very insecure person. Like I've found a, a way of, of feeling at peace with most of my insecurities, but this certainly does. Like I find this a, a daunting yeah. task. Yeah. Same. It, you almost have to detox from yeah. the traditional metrics and lists and milestones and like refocus your mind on the email you get from somebody in a country you've never visited that read your book and was just like, man, yeah. I identify so much with what you said on page 14. And you're like, what the hell did I say on page 14? <laughs> I wrote that three years ago. <laughs> but like you, you kind of have to say that like, these are the things that I'm chasing. I'm, I'm willing to be generous. I'm willing to break even to get the book in as many people's hands as possible. I'm willing to, you know, fly to a medical conference in who knows where, yeah. because those people have never heard this in their life. Like they live in the Midwest and they've been removed from all people who, you know, are, are living in this way. So it's, it, it is humbling. <laughs> it's a quite humbling yeah, experience yeah. because you would think selling a product under $20, well, our book is under $20, like selling a product under $20 to rich people should be super easy, but <laughs> like it's, it's a, it's a one, one by like one-to-one sales yeah. experience instead of one-to-many, which is what we're used to. And like, it's almost like you have to talk to people individually and be yeah. very hyper-specific with your messaging to get them to buy that book. It's, I'll be honest with you, it's also, and I appreciate your transparency because we're in the same boat. It's kind of heartbreaking too. Yeah. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.